Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Man, this whole intimacy with Jesus thing is ridiculous. I feel like I'm becoming a real boy. <laughs> I mean, Travis has always been real, so he cries all the time. Um, <laughs> um, we're talking about John the Baptist, and uh, it's interesting because oftentimes when, when, we, when John's brought up, we talk about him, we, we think of him as this kind of weird extreme guy, uh, a, a guy who had this really extreme lifestyle. A lot of people, you know, kind of talk about him like he's this hippie guy living in the wilderness, probably fit in in the, like the 60s. And it's interesting because what, thinking about really how he's described in the New Testament, this is like his clothes, he wore camel hair, um, which to us feels like weird guy, but, but really it, then it was really similar to what Israel knew that, that identified almost was the, the outfit of the prophets. Uh, particularly, Elijah wore the same basic clothing as John wore. Uh, it, and it kind of fits with the, the, the unindulgent lifestyle John had and the seriousness of his message, the simplicity of his message. It says he ate, while he ate locusts and wild honey. Um, I don't really know the difference between wild and uh, tame honey, but <laughs> maybe there's a difference. Some of you who has bees can tell me later, but um, again, that was a common food in the Middle Eastern wilderness. That wasn't unusual that a person would eat locusts and, and, and wild honey. And it was clean according to the law and it was good to eat. Um, we tend to think of John as unusual and extreme, but, but I think getting past those surface things that just don't correlate with our culture, I think if we find John's actual life extreme, I, 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 think, I think it's probably because we don't yet understand the revelation of God that John had. I think John's life doesn't primarily expose our lack of discipline, I think it confronts our lack of revelation and our lack of desire. Because I think if we understood Scripture the way John understood Scripture, and if, if we had been formed by God's hand in the wilderness like John was, then I think we'd have a different understanding of what extreme is and isn't. And, and so last week we were at the temple and this week we're in the wilderness. Um, if you haven't heard last, I would just encourage you to, to at least for these three weeks, because um, these three weeks are, are kind of building and dependent on each other. And so if you missed last week, um, go listen to it, because this week follows that um, and is very, very connected with that. Uh, so this week we're in the wilderness. Next week we'll be at the cross. Um, but John the Baptist spent his whole life in the wilderness. Um, except for the last six or so months. That was his entire ministry lifespan, six or so months. About 30 years he was in the wilderness. 
And those were years of development that God did for less than a year of ministry. Isn't that crazy how we kind of flip that around in our lives? We, we, we you know, kind of hit maybe two years, maybe four years, maybe for those who are really excited about academics, maybe eight years, and then we look for 40 years of, of fruitful and glorious ministry and success. It's like God flipped that with John. It was 30 years of wilderness preparation and less than a year of ministry. And if we were to measure his ministry with our modern day metrics, it would be a miserable failure, like a church plant that didn't last more than six months. <laughs> the worst of church plants today lasts more than six months. <laughs> and, and so here's the thing, and, and today I want to talk about the fact that God calls us into the wilderness to form us into who we are called to be. And I believe that there is no other context than the wilderness that God can do those things in our lives for a number of reasons. But here's the choice that we have. If you are satisfied with influence and popularity and comfort and success, then you can avoid the wilderness. If you're like, good, that, that works for me. I'm good with that. But if on the other hand, you wanna know God and you want deep intimacy with God, then God draws you into the wilderness because that's where he shapes us, that's where he forms us. Because what the wilderness does, it, it removes everything that's superficial and confronts us with who we really actually are and what we can do with our own power and our own strength. You see, in the wilderness, in a place that is difficult and hard, what we realize pretty fast, no matter how talented we are, we realize that we can't actually do that much. And we're left to ourselves. We're left to, to being, recognizing that we're broken and that our ability doesn't really go that far. It might go farther than somebody else, but it really won't go that far. And so when we come to the end of our own strength and ability in the wilderness, then the stage is set in our life for God's glory and God's work through us. But we have to be in that place. We have to choose the vulnerability of, of, of this. And this is the struggle. When Jesus, said, when Jesus said, you must deny yourself and take up your cross, this is what he's talking about. The struggle is, is are you willing to deny your own thinking, even though you trust yourself, are you willing to deny your own perception in order to believe what God has said or will you deny God instead and put confidence in what you see, think, and feel? Because that's really the choices that we have. I either deny my own thinking and my own feelings and my own dreams and aspirations or I deny God and what he says and what he calls me to. Now, sometimes those things are in line, but... There's a lot that isn't. And, and so what am I going to do? Because you see, th this is the core of what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. Because when these two things come and conflict in our mind, we have a hard time navigating that because we end up on like the edge of insanity because, because nobody wants to submit to a wisdom that they do not fully agree with. And if we're really honest, we don't always fully agree with God and his wisdom. That's just true, we don't. 
I don't, and I don't know, maybe you, do, maybe you always agree with God and his wisdom and you always do what God says and you're always like, yep, God's way, not my way. But I think most of us, not all of us, we have a hard time with that. And, 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 so, and so really what we see in, in the life of John the Baptist is that he walked away from the temple and went into the wilderness where God would form him for 30 years so that he would be ready to be used for his purposes. And so if you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter three. I'm gonna start reading in, in verse two. So in Luke chapter three, Luke writes, and in verse one, he actually kind of gives some names and places and, 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 and seasons kind of thing to, to basically say this is a real story. This isn't made up. This is a real thing that happened in time and space a specific time in a specific space, and this happened. He goes on and he says, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, which is interesting, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Um, again, last week we talked about the priesthood and how, how God, with John, was, I am, I'm eliminating the priesthood of Israel because they have been disobedient and they never really did what I asked them to do. And so John is that prototype for us that we are then the priesthood of believers. And so it's interesting that, 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 that Annas and Caiaphas are mentioned. Caiaphas, just if you, if you know your gospel stories, Caiaphas is the, 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 the high priest who condemned Jesus. And when Jesus stood before Pilate, Jesus said to Pilate, you the one who actually gave me into your hands committed the greater sin. He's talking about Caiaphas who committed the greater sin. And, and so it says that uh, it was during the time when these two guys were high, in the high priesthood of, of Israel, it says the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. And in Matthew, there's a little bit more detail that there's all of these crowds full of all kinds of different people. There was, there was, there was people who were curious. There was people who were, were just kind of uh, wondering. There's people who probably were, were motivated because their, their hearts were quickened by the, the message that they heard John was preaching. Um, there, were, there were tax collectors. There were soldiers. There was Pharisees. There was people from the temple. And in Matthew, it says he turned to the Pharisees who were in the crowd and says this, which probably applied to some of the other people in the crowd as well. Uh, in the crowd as well but, but he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In Matthew chapter three, John says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's out in the wilderness and he's kind of going around in the wilderness, around the Jordan, still the wilderness. He's not in the amphitheater. He's not coming to like an Israeli city near you. It's just that he's in the wilderness and you have to go out into the wilderness region of Jordan to find John preaching. And so the crowds, again, are all kinds of people in the crowd. And, and, and it's interesting because John says a couple things that I think are of note in his address of the crowd. He says, you brood of vipers. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? I mean, it's, it's obvious, it's gotta be an insult because nobody wants to be called that. But he doesn't call them just snakes. He calls them the offspring of vipers in particular. See, vipers birth live babies, they don't lay eggs. And, and it's interesting, if you, if you look and, and you look back, a common belief during that day was that in vipers, eggs hatched inside the mother viper, and as the snakes came out of their eggs, these baby snakes, they would actually eat their way out of their mother's stomach, killing the mother in the process. So baby snakes would eat out of the, the, the mom that gave them birth and that those mothers would die in the process of birth that way. This is like a huge insult. Jesus says this to the Pharisees as well. He says, he calls them a brood of vipers. This is not just your run-of-the-mill insult or accusation. What, what John is saying to these temple leaders is he's basically accusing them as those who are responsible for guiding Israel toward God of destroying the very thing that God has given them life. Basically, he's accusing them of killing God from the inside out. Like, those are, those are pretty serious words. <laughs> and that's vicious. And then he goes on and, and he says after this to, to the crowd, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And I think that's interesting because, because when I think of repentance, I primarily think of salvation. I think of repentance leads to, you know, leads us to salvation and then we're saved and forgiven and we live for Christ. But really, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's like repentance isn't a thing that leads to salvation, but repentance is a thing that keeps you in a place where you bear good fruit. You see, repentance is beyond just mere sorry. It actually has visible evidence of its sincerity. It extends well beyond salvation into my lifestyle. When you become a follower of Jesus, you are actually living a lifestyle of repentance before him. That should characterize every believer. It's funny that in English language, people have said the two hardest uh, words to say are, I'm sorry which I think suggests that maybe we're not living in a lifestyle of repentance. Maybe we've missed something there. See, many of us in the church are eager to correct and confront others, but just having the right information, even if it's biblical, is not enough to give a messenger the right to publicly confront God's people. You have to live, bear before God, and let him transform you before you start to go out and confront 
whether it's other believers or the world, because it will not be genuine. But, but you see, in our culture and in, 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 our, in our world, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that, that we just feel like if we have the right information, it, nothing else matters. You see, true repentance will cut off our competing affections and set our primary focus on living like and obeying Jesus. That's where our focus will be. Because you see, we all have competing affections. Every one of us. Some of us don't realize we have competing affections because we've lived with them so long and they have kind of become molded into what we think is our Christianity, but it's not. It's actually idolatry and we don't even realize it. And so, and so part of this is, is that we've got to come before God in repentance, a lifestyle of repentance in order so that we really do become like and obey Jesus. See, for every person born in this age, every person born this age has really only two purposes, and this applies to everyone. One is to reveal God to us, and two is that we would become like Jesus. Even if, even if you're not a believer, you don't believe in God, this age, one, one, the purpose of this age is that you would be confronted by God. And if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, then the purpose in your life in this age is that you would be transformed to become like Jesus. Those are the, really the only two purposes in, in our existence. But we've reduced becoming like Jesus to learning his moral code. And so, so many of us think that if we can resist stealing and resist looking at pornography, we've become like Jesus. Do you know how many people who, who are going to hell that don't steal and look at porn? There's a lot of them. Living up to a moral code doesn't, and getting people to live up to a moral code doesn't do anything. It might make me more comfortable being around people, but it doesn't change their eternity. And, and, and so here, here we've got John telling these crowds, and he's telling them, repent and be baptized, and, and, he, and he's insulting people. And then he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so then in verse 10, look, look what happens. The, the, the crowd responds. And this is, this is kind of awesome. It says, in verse 10, it says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? I think that is worth stopping for a second. Because when you hear, when you read the word of God or when you hear a message uh, from the word of God, what is your typical response? I think often our typical responses are, man, that, I've got a lot to think about. Or, or uh, man, that was really good. Or, or maybe it's, man, I didn't know those things. I am coming out with more information. How often do, do we when, when, when we, when we are exposed to the word of God, whether it's through a sermon or, or reading, just simply reading the word, how often do we respond with, what do I need to do? What is my action right now, right here? You see, if our exposure to the word gives us something to think about, but never provokes in us the question, what must I do? Then something is really, really wrong. And that wrong is either with the messenger who's giving that word, or it's with me who's receiving that word. 
It could be that the messenger giving that word is full of hypocrisy and is dismissed because their lifestyle doesn't look like the word they just shared. And sometimes, probably more often, it's with me. Because if that word is true and I don't say what must I do, then that means I'm not willing to receive it. If I just say, man, that's a lot to think about, have I really received the word? And, and, and so John goes on, and so they ask in the crowd, they say, okay, what do we need to do? And, and listen, to what, 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 listen to what he says. He says, and he answers them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. This is in verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. This is why I know tax collectors were in the crowd, because <laughs> they came to be baptized. Tax collectors were the worst in Jewish society. They were the ones who were trying to destroy the nation of Israel because they turned their backs on everything that Israel meant. In their behavior and the way where they were living and the, the things that they were enforcing on the people was destroying their country. And these tax collectors come to be baptized. And they say to John, teacher, what shall we do? That's crazy. And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. That was a big thing. Because the tax collectors oppressed and burdened their own people. There were no rules on them. They could do whatever they want, and they ruined people's lives. So John said, be generous and be honest. See people with value. See people as image bearers. Just because you can doesn't mean you ought to. And then it says this, which is kind of shocking in, in my brain. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? Like, there were soldiers there? <laughs> like, that doesn't even make sense. Soldiers showing up to this guy, prophet, priest in the wilderness, calling people to repentance, insulting some, and saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so soldiers come and say, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threat or false accusation, and be content with your wages. Huh. So he says, be content with whatever's going on. He says, don't lord your authority over people even though you can even if these are bad people and they deserve it. Do what is appropriate. Don't go overboard. And, and so he tells this to the soldiers. And so then it says, then, then, then it, it's, again, it, it's interesting to see the, the groups of people who are there. I think John is the forerunner of Christ. He came before Christ. And it's interesting that this, this part in, in, in Luke chapter 3 is, I, I would say it's like the four Sermon on the Mount before the Sermon on the Mount. Because isn't that what it sounds like? Everything John said is, is encompassed in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches. I would think those who heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount would say, if they had heard John, would probably say, man, this sounds familiar. And so you see, here's the thing. If, if, if we are not a demonstration of the words we speak, our words will not carry the kind of power 
that John's words carried. God isn't looking for us to discover a new kind of message. He's inviting us to live and become the message he has already given. Listen to this. It says in verse verse 15, it says, as the people were in expectation, all all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. You see, he, he he was someone who people thought, this guy could be the Messiah because of, of the demonstration of his life, it matches exactly with the words of God. See, it's, it's interesting. We might argue passionately for certain aspects of morality. But do we have the same passion with the words of Scripture that confront our own lifestyles? Are we that passionate about the words of Scripture? That I, th- I think it's interesting because there are a lot of moral and ethical evils in the world today being perpetrated everywhere by our government, by our neighbors, by people that we may have labeled as enemies, by the schools, sometimes by churches. And so we stand strong and may use strong language and, and we call for Repentance. It's interesting that, 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 that Paul says in Romans, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. When was the last time we responded, responded to a moral evil with kindness? I've heard a lot of people say, we don't have time for kindness. We need to be bold. God's move to become man was the boldest move in all of history, and it was the kindest move in all of history. I don't know that me thinking that my anger and my disgust can move someone to repentance better than God's kindness can. And if I'm thinking that way, there's something wrong with my heart and my mind and who my allegiance is given to. And you see, the, 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 message, the messenger, we are the message. John was the message. His lifestyle was. Our culture tends, again, to celebrate information. But God values demonstration. I think that social media reflects the true state of our existence. I've come to conclude that. We value posting information and points and arguments far more than we value relationships. Because if we valued relationships, we would set aside time to go talk to somebody. Oh, but I have much more influence and impact when I put it on Facebook or Instagram or if I tweet it. Interesting. I think it reveals the true state of our heart. We don't actually love people. We just want them to be right and do right and not bother us. I think social media has become a reflection of what's inside of our bodies. You see, any messenger who communicates or demonstrates human strength communicates falsehoods about the gospel. 
Look at Moses. God says to Moses, to, to, the Israelites are, are super thirsty. And God says to Moses, go speak to the rock and I will provide water to the nation of Israel in the wilderness, by the way. And Moses goes and he says, look what you've caused me to do. And he strikes the rock with his staff. Power and strength, Moses. He completely misrepresented the character of God. Because Moses used his strength. Water still came, but he misrepresented God's character. The worst thing that I can do as a Christian, the worst thing that I can do as a Christian is do things and speak truth in a a manner that misrepresents God's character. That's the absolute worst thing I can do. Because the only way a person can reject the message of the gospel is that the messenger is illegitimate. You realize that the problem, you know, we talk about, you know, like, well, why, why, why are people, why do people reject the Bible? Why are people not listening to the Bible? Why are people, there's some things there. But I would say in our context, the message of the gospel isn't the problem. It's the messengers bearing the gospel who can be easily dismissed before the message has an opportunity to land. I think that's true. I mean, we don't even like each other. (laughs) How can we expect unbelievers to like us? (laughs) And so, so we've got to recognize that. So John... John has this message and he demonstrates this message. He lives this message. It's hard, you can't dismiss John because of who he is. He's been developed and forged in the wilderness for for 30 years and now he's doing his ministry. And and, and so the fullness of John's being was focused on preparing the way of Jesus. And and there's a couple things that we see. Um, When we catch these in in, in the gospel of John, we we see this in, in, in Luke as well. It says, um, in verse 15, again, the people were, were, were in expectation. All they were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. There's two things that he says that I think are important to recognize in his ministry that are recorded in in the Gospel of John. John chapter one, in verse 29, he says this. He says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. This is answer to to the people's question in the crowd. I'm not the Christ, not the Messiah. Not even worthy to, to, to practically come near the Messiah. 
But you see, here's, here's what happened. In his wilderness formation, John had decades to prepare to faithfully and without hesitation point to Jesus, even when it threatened him. How quickly in our daily lives are we faithfully and without hesitation pointing toward Jesus? I mean, I think for most of us, probably our first reaction is fear or anger. And, 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 and John, his reaction to things is point toward Jesus, point toward Jesus. That doesn't happen unless you have been in the wilderness with, wilderness with Jesus. See, if you choose the wilderness, it will slowly close in on you and lead you to make a conscious choice to pursue communication with God first, reject self-promotion, and delight in Jesus being raised up. That's what will happen. But we think, man, that's so hard in our lives. That's so hard to do. You know why? Because I, in so many cases, have rejected the wilderness moments of my life just to escape them because I want them to go away. And I don't want to live in those things. But you know what I've also escaped? The formation of character that looks like Jesus. Am I really willing to draw the kind of attention to Jesus that he actually wants? And let's just remember, Jesus tells us the kind of attention he wants us drawing to him. And I think many of us in the church have missed the memo. Because <laughs> we're drawing lots of attention to Jesus, but I don't know it's the attention that he wants. So then in John chapter three, verse 25, he says the thing that we all kind of equate with John the Baptist. He says, it says, now there a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, speaking of Jesus, to whom you bore witness, like you recognized him and you said all these good things about him. Look, he's baptized him and, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands near him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. This is what John's disciples are saying. Hey, John, you are losing potential baptizes to the baptizer over across the road. It's like the worst church growth philosophy ever. To say we must decrease so that Jesus increases. He says that, yeah, them going there makes my joy complete. I must decrease so he must increase. Like we can say all kinds of good things that sound good, humble, and, and righteous, John did them. <laughs> At no point did John say, oh, yeah, 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 we, we need to do something different to attract more baptizees. No, they're, they're with Jesus, and that's what matters. That's what I care about. You see, John didn't have a temple mindset of power and authority, but he had a wilderness mindset of humility and faithfulness. We tend to have, by our nature, the temple mentality. 
The temple mentality is actually that that reflects the world's mentality. See, if the loss, I want you to hear this. If your loss of influence or perceived impact is more important than the invitation to greater intimacy with God, your life is most definitely out of alignment. Let me say that again, because I think this is super important, because I have struggled with this. If your influence, if your influence and your impact gets raised up above your intimacy with God is more frequently pursued than intimacy with God in the quiet place, in the wilderness, then your life is out of alignment with Jesus. And I think that characterizes so much of our lives. Oh, but, but we need influence. I mean, don't you think, wouldn't you agree that a church that is influential will have more impact for the gospel? Don't you think that that's true? Yeah, I mean, conventional wisdom says absolutely, but what God says is that if you are not deeply intimate, abiding in me, it doesn't matter how much influence you have, you will not have influence for the kingdom of God. And, and so we need to be willing the way of Jesus is saying, if no one, if I get to influence no one in my lifetime, which isn't what Jesus wants for you, at the cost of intimacy with God, I will take intimacy with God. Now, the funny thing about that is if we are truly intimate with God, we will impact people. Without a doubt. Am I really, really willing, honestly, to decrease for Jesus to increase? Am I willing to lose things so that Jesus becomes greater? Am I willing to give up things so that Jesus is seen how he wants to be seen? And then the end of John's story is that he goes to prison after this. <laughs> and that's it. And we don't see John publicly again until we get a little bit of a glimpse of him alone in a cell and he gets beheaded without people around him, without anyone saying, oh, he was so brave of martyr. It was in a back room without an audience. No one was, no one was inspired. And, and his, his, his ministry folded. Interestingly enough, in Acts, in the later chapters of Acts, Paul runs into a group of people, I believe it's in Antioch. And he says, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And they say, oh, no, no, no. But we are God-fearers and we live the baptism of John. How, on the, how in the world did John's message in the wilderness of Judea get all the way out there? It's because he pursued God and obeyed God in the wilderness. And while he may have had a very small spirit where he ministered, it went decades beyond his lifetime and pointed people toward God and toward the Messiah long after he was gone. So here's the thing. God does, I believe God does work in the wilderness that he will not do anywhere else. 
And I believe that we need to be willing. I was talking with a couple of people after the first service, and they said, well, well like, do we intentionally put ourselves in the wilderness? I think there's two things that, that the wilderness comes from, and I'm kind of thinking out loud right now, so I'm just throwing this out, so I could be wrong. I think there's a part of us, there's a passive and there's an active. I think our passive role in the wilderness is those things that come into our lives that we can't control, that we don't like. Because of God's sovereignty, I believe those are wilderness that God places us in. The active part is what we do in that wilderness. When you're in the wilderness, something that you don't like, something that's difficult, okay, fine, I'm just gonna binge Netflix. That's probably not gonna draw you into intimacy with God. We have a response to make in that wilderness, and if we're just trying to get out of it, we bypass the formation of character and Christ-likeness that God wants for us in that wilderness. Here's, here's, I wanna give you three things that God does in the wilderness that he will not do anywhere else. One, presence. In the wilderness, God asks you, am I enough for you? And you see, we can't answer that question outside the wilderness. You know why? Because we have so many other things to rely on outside of the wilderness. You can only honestly answer the question, am I enough for you to God if you are in the wilderness, if you have nothing else? Second thing that God does in the wilderness that he won't do anywhere else is provision. In the wilderness, God asks, do you trust me? Outside of the wilderness, there's all kinds of things that we can trust in. And we're really good at trusting in other things plus God. But in the wilderness, when we have nothing else, we can honestly answer, do I trust you? And God works us through that. Third thing that God does is preparation. In the wilderness, God asks, am I God? Because while we might make mental assent to that and say, yep, God is God, he's the only one, we also think that we're God. <laughs> Just look at how we talk and what we do and the things we control. And it's only in the wilderness that we can be faced with that and say, okay, God, I'm not, I can't do anything about this. You are the one and only God whom I trust and you are enough. That will not be developed in your life and my life anywhere else outside the wilderness. See, the wilderness exposes the deepest desire of our hearts and our character because it offers only one thing. You know what the wilderness offers? The possibility of deep communion with an uncreated God. That's what the wilderness offers. And I think God gave us a picture in the last couple years of our disobedience. God gave us a global pandemic, which I would say is a wilderness. And you know what most of us did? How do I get out of this? But that's exactly how we react to the wilderness that God brings into our life. How do I get out of this? Instead of saying, okay, what do I need to become through this? How, how many of us would say, have gotten to this end, this part of the global events and said, I never wanna go back there again? How many of us, when God forms us through the wilderness, look back to that time and say, I never wanna go back there again? That's basically saying, I don't, I am enough transformation and I don't want any more. You see, we are the priesthood of believers. And we become the obedient and effective 
and faithful priesthood through the wilderness, just like John. Jesus, because we're not good at focusing on Jesus otherwise. Trouble will come, but we don't know when the disruption will enter our lives, and we, and we don't have to wait for that, because we have an invitation right now to turn aside, take the word of God seriously, and ask the Holy Spirit to align our affections with his. See, if we respond, we can begin to live wholeheartedly and fully as a wilderness people, even though we live in a comfortable, prosperous, and distracting place. See, God's primary context to shaping our lives for his purpose and his glory happens in the wilderness. And if you and I are going to be the priests who participate in preparing the nations, let alone our own community, then we need to step into the wilderness trusting God. I want Travis to come back up and I want us to kind of reflect and I know it's a little bit over. Maybe this is your wilderness right now. <laughs> but here's what I want to ask you this morning and it's, it's a really, really, really hard ask and I don't want this to, to get confused with some kind of performance or some kind of performance thing. But here's the question that I want to ask you this morning and it's costly. Are you willing to follow Jesus in the wilderness and let him do what he wants to do with you there? I'll be very honest. It's taken the last two or three years for me to be willing to be in the wilderness with Jesus and not be constantly trying to get out of it. And, and, and so the question is, are you willing to follow Jesus? And here's the thing, it will cost you. You will have to give things up. You will upset people. And it's not because you're, you do it intentionally, but it's just that's the cost of following Jesus. You'll upset friends and family. It'll cost you things. It'll cost you affections, things you love. But you'll have the opportunity for deep and abiding intimacy with Jesus. And I, I want you to know that if you were to ask me to take this seriously two years ago, I think I wouldn't do it. Because I, I don't know that Jesus was enough. I don't know that I trusted him. This morning what I want to ask is if maybe the Holy Spirit's working in your heart and your mind right now and you're like, okay, I am ready to follow Jesus into the wilderness. That as you pray and as we close and reflect, I would ask you to stand, not yet, but if that's, and again, don't stand because you want to look right because that's your reward <laughs> is you look good in front of other people. Only stand because you the Spirit has you in a place where you're saying, doesn't matter the cost. I, I need this. Because if you do that, then God's gonna hold you to it. 
It is not shame on you if you're not standing. If the Spirit doesn't move you into that place, then don't force your way in because it'll be an abject failure. <laughs> but if the Spirit is moving you there, then I would suggest obey. And by standing, basically what you're saying is, yes, I am at this juncture that I'm ready to follow Jesus in the wilderness and whatever he needs to do is worth it. And so let's just spend a few minutes reflecting, letting the Holy Spirit speak. God loves every one of us, whether you're sitting or standing. Follow and be obedient to the Holy Spirit right now. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.